Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, the Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animation video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of engaging videos. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Tim Tortora. Tim has lived and worked all over the world, basically on the road for 13 years of his career. He ran Oprah Winfrey's film and long-form TV unit, The Benji Franchise, produced at Mandalay Sports Entertainment, worked on Jackass the Movie, the Burton movie, and countless TV and film projects. He stopped traveling and working in the trenches of film production when he knew he wanted a family and not just in name. He continues to work in his dream business, but now from the desk of a CFO, producing movies from eight to six and advising investors in his consulting practices before and after his day as a CFO. Last year, he wrote a book and created content to help investors and young movie business entrepreneurs find their way through Hollywood without getting conned. His book is not a tell-all. He could have written something that was sleazy, named names, and told the inside stories of people who sometimes behave very badly, but instead he chose to write a book about how not to get hosed by the Hollywood con man. Thanks so much for joining me today, Tim, and welcome to- You're welcome, and thank you for having me. I love the idea. Absolutely. So Tim, take me back to tell me, how did you first get involved in the film and television industry? So it started when I was a freshman in college. I I was a music major. I was a drummer as a kid and came up learning about creative and making music in college. And everybody had to take a recording engineering class who was in my music program. They happened to have a recording studio and I just took to it. It was interesting. It was creative. It was extremely technical and there was a lot to learn and to wrap your brain around. And I just took to it like a duck to water and did a lot of it. Every waking minute I was available to be in the studio, I was there, which led to me getting an internship at a recording studio for a producer who was the founding member of a band called Berlin, which had a hit in the eighties and a couple of records that did very well. And then it just went from there. I got a degree in advertising, worked in marketing for a studio, actually for an agent, for an ad agency on a studio account for Columbia Pictures and then later TriStar Pictures. And then I got into film production. 
Oh, excellent. That's quite the journey. I was a film major in college as well, and I was unfortunate enough to graduate right into the writer's strike. So I, I got my first gig uh, in the fall of 2007, just unpaid production assistant. I'd go work 16 hour days and I just, I loved it. They say, love what you do. You'll never work a day in your life. And I would get off set at 2am and just be like, jazz, what are we doing next? And then got my first paid gig through those people. And then the week after I got my paid gig, the writer strike started. And then all that was left was reality TV. And I'd gone to school, want to be a cinematographer. So reality yeah. TV was not exactly what I was looking for. So it was it's an interesting ours. time, but if reality television is not art, but it makes money, that's for sure. And it's cheap to make. So there's a lot of it that killed uh, narrative film and television. And I don't want to belabor a point about the strike. There have been three strikes in my career in the 80s, in the or right around late 90s, early 2000s. And then again in 2007, 2008, the one in 2000, early 2000 was threatened and never happened in the studio stockpiled content. But the result of those actions and the behavior of the people running the Writers Guild of America was such that they were basically pounding their chest like a gorilla. And what did they do? They got into a position every single time where in for anywhere from six months to a year or a year and a half, their writers worked less. There was more reality television created out of those writer strikes. And the point is, if you don't find a way to find compromise and you just pound your chest and go to war with people, everybody loses, including your own members. And the WGA is the personification of that three times in my 35 year career. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting too. One, you can look at the side of it that like, what would reality TV be today, if not for the 2007 strike, just because there was nothing else to do. But on the other hand, I look at it like, that was really all about internet monetization and like how is how are we going to make money off of all this stuff but it was for something that's so unsettled right for an emerging technology and to really not be able to sit back and think hey let's craft a long-term solution as this evolves that can be a bit malleable that everyone can get what they want from it rather than like you said you're just pounding your chest and like rushing into something that like doesn't actually need to yet be decided and of course you look at today we've got things like TikTok where kids can literally just do fun dances and monetize that into millions of dollars and it's a completely different sort of decentralized entertainment world in, in a lot of senses now yeah there there is a huge dispersion going on and i think the next dispersion is going to be in the direct to consumer delivery of content by creatives you don't have to find millions of people to make a good living creating content. And I say, when I say a good living, I mean into six figures. You can find 100,000 people, 10,000 people selling them $10 tickets, making whatever content you have. And that's a very good living. And there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to make millions. It's great to make a lot of money, but you don't have to necessarily. And that's the first, this is the first time in the history of content creation and in the human race where an individual content creator can gain access to their consumer directly without going to the piles of money, which is essentially a studio, a streamer, or some kind of financier that says, okay, we'll make your content. Here's a pile of money. Go do that. We'll pay for it, but we want the rights forever. And by the way, we're going to give you a net definition that means nothing. I'm paraphrasing. They don't say this, but they're going to, I'm going to give you a net definition where you're never going to get paid anything. So here's your fee and <clears throat> excuse me, here's your fee and good luck. Uh, we're going to make a lot of money and you're going to make nothing. 
So that system is changing and it will change faster than it ever has. And the Writers Guild, to focus on this part of the conversation, was way ahead of the curve to your point. They shouldn't have gone out in 2008. And it was really just, it was a struck, it was a strike over greed, right? One, one person wants more, yeah. the other person doesn't want to give up more. Writers make really good money. Scale for a writer is four grand a week on episodic television. I'm rounding. And in, in features, it's a hundred grand. And in, in cable television, it's 50,000 for a, an hour and a half draft. So these people all do very well and it's about power and it's just about greed and to call it anything else is just nonsense. Yeah, it's really fascinating to see the sort of final death throes of a variety of gatekeepers. It's been happening for years across a variety of industries since you know, I was born in 83, grew up, we were probably the first people to like computers and stuff. But I remember not having a computer. My sister was born in 90. She doesn't remember not having the internet. So the scale and the acceleration of change is, is just amazing now. And I think this decade, we're really going to see what you're talking about is that that direct to consumer decentralization where gatekeepers no longer exist. Or I look at something like someone was telling me Facebook just launched podcasting services or something like that. But in the term and people are like, oh, this should be fun. And it's like, why would this be good? And then you go into the terms of service and it's essentially if you put your podcast on there, they own it. Anyone can take it. Anyone can do anything they want with it. And so from there, it's just I don't I think things like that, that behemoths like Facebook are going to shoot themselves in the foot because their terms of service are so restrictive anyways. But when you're talking about really taking over people's like content creation, like on that extent, you're going to get destroyed by startups that come along and put the content creator first and just give them a nice, easy way to monetize their art, monetize their creative capacity. And then it, it's going to be really interesting to see what it looks like in five or 10 years. Yeah, you using a different analogy, you saw that with Shopify and Amazon was dominating sellers. They were telling them, this is how it works. Fuck you. It's about us, not about you. And Shopify came in and, and essentially allowed that kind of marketplace for sellers who were selling in Amazon. And they stripped out the Amazon rules and created their own. The same thing is happening with Patreon and I can't think of OnlyFans is another platform, although OnlyFans is more in the area of pornography, but put that aside for a second. But these are platforms where people are selling directly to consumers in some way. I don't love the Patreon model. I think we should be collecting money for or earning income from consumers who are buying something, whether it's content or swag or hard product or whatever it is, all of that's available. I don't like the idea of Patreon and the other platforms like it, it just feels like begging to me. And you're not really selling content. I think ad supported is a better model than the Patreon model. But that's just my opinion. It still gives ultimately consumers access to their content creators and vice versa. So content creators now control their audience and they're not at the whim of Facebook or Google or Amazon or whoever who decides to change the model and hose your revenue. And that's ultimately, to your point about Facebook, we have to be careful about that. And they do own everything. That's the terms of use. So you got to be careful. Yeah, I think Shopify is really a fascinating example because what a lot of people don't know is consumers is that Amazon really only cares about customers and that's who they make things convenient for. That's yeah. Jeff Bezos's whole thing from the very beginning. But they are absolutely terrible to sellers. 
right? Like you can have your account shut down for any number of reasons. They don't give you any customer data. So every sale you make on Amazon, like you don't get an email, like you don't know who those people are. Whereas on Shopify, like you can own all that, like it flips everything on its head. And I think we've seen a lot of startups over the past decade that are like, oh, we're going to be the Uber of X. We're going to be the Airbnb of X. What I'm really interested to see is Shopify becoming that, right? Oh, I'm going to be the Shopify of content creation. I think that's where there's so much fertile ground for just flipping these, you know, behemoths on their head and taking, because there's so many bad qualities of them put aside Amazon warehouse labor standards and garbage like that. But when you just really look at like how they're servicing their customers and, and it's a two-sided marketplace and Amazon is a two-sided marketplace where they're like to one side of the marketplace, they're go fuck yourself. We don't need you. There's a million other people that are desperate to be here. Yeah. And so being able to take two-sided marketplaces like that, where they're really inefficient and they're not addressing one side of the market effectively. It's to me, once I had gotten in and was like selling on Amazon for different companies, I was like, God, how is there not like a large scale revolt? This is absolutely insane. Like you get virtually nothing out of this. You have to pay so much to Amazon. You're barely making a profit. And it's really just the publicity of it. But it's if you really thought on it, like how much could you redirect that money towards other endeavors to blow up your brand or, or whatever? Yeah, it's my my biggest quarrel with in my own personal life is selling books on Amazon. I published a book. I'm required to sell it for no more than $9.99. If I want to sell my book for $1,000 a copy, I should have the right to do that. But Amazon doesn't want me to. They want, to your point, they want to use it as marketing and they want me to sell my book at a particular price so that people will stay and they'll buy toilet paper or they'll buy some other piece of content or they'll buy an actual device like a Kindle so they can read on it. So it's not about the seller. It's about the the consumer and Amazon's core business. And to your point about the Shopify of content, those systems, those platforms are starting to get created. They're not really getting traction. People aren't talking about them. There's, I would say, about a half dozen of them. I don't really want to talk about any particular one or any of them at the moment because I don't. I find that most of them don't get what content creators want, which is they want to have access to their data. Who are their customers? What are they getting to what you said earlier about Amazon? They don't tell you that, but Shopify does. They want to have a brand. You want to be able to create a brand, a look around your, your content, your business. You're an entrepreneur. In all of these platforms that I've seen so far that we're testing, they all are promoting their brand, not yours. Shopify, yes, they promote their brand. However, when you build a site, when you build a store on Shopify, you can really make it look like your own. And I find that's not the case in most of these platforms. So those are two stumbling blocks that I see in the space of this direct-to-consumer content platform businesses being created. And eventually they'll probably get there. And I, I complain at them. When I say complain, I shoot him an email saying, Hey man, I do this for people who do this for a living. And what you're doing is great. I love the idea, but here's what you're missing. You got to hit this, you got to hit that. And this and that is control data and let my brand be me, not you with my brand plugged into your, you really do want an almost invisible brand. You want something that's virtually headless that yeah. people can just plug in whatever they're doing. Cause yeah. And Shopify it's unless you have the absolute lowest thing. And I think even on there, there's ways to code the liquid where like you remove anything where it says like even powered by Shopify or something. Yeah. And so 
you really only know if it's a Shopify site if they don't really do much to like actually change the appearance, right? Because the best Shopify sites usually have a WordPress homepage or something like a, fa- a WordPress face on it or something. Right. And then there's, and then there's like sort of some of the higher paid themes that like maybe people see a little less and then you have a good liquid developer that can change things around. So it doesn't look like that just stock Shopify page. But of course there's pages like that, but sneaker companies do $10 million. It's it's not that big a deal and, and people don't care too much. And I think in the long run, people will care more, but at the same time, like trying to create a Shopify for content creators that puts that brand up front, that brand is going to lose all day, every day. It's like when you look at like the Facebooks and Amazons and even Patreon, right? All of those are about their brand. Yeah. No one is about, oh, hey, we're going to take a back seat to that. We're, you need one that's almost like the quiet middleman, almost like in line with a payroll company or something like a yeah. company that supports everyone, but you never hear anyone talk about them. That is really like the ultimate model for what that would be, I think. And I think the fee that they extract from this from the market is also important. And we're hearing a lot about this with Apple and Google and Uber Eats and the other delivery pl- platforms like Grubhub and so on. Businesses who are doing business in these places are extract are having 10 to 20 to 30% extracted from their prices or added on to their prices in some cases. And ultimately, I think that's horseshit. I just think that the the business needs to be what the credit card companies charge as far as a percentage, which I have a problem with that in in and of itself, but they provide a service. It's relatively small. It's relatively low. It's three to 5%. If you use a Stripe account and you're unknown, you can grind that down a little bit if you get bigger. And then you pay an, a monthly fee. And Shopify is the perfect example. We keep coming back to it because I think it really resonates with people. And I think ultimately the food delivery systems are going to have to change the way they work. I don't think tech guys who just show up and marry two bodies and have very little infrastructure as far as marginal revenue product in terms of adding a new client, I don't think they should get paid a percentage. I think they should get paid a fee, whatever that fee is. And if it scales in terms of millions of users, then you have a business. But to say that because I created this thing and I should be able to get 10, 20, 30% or whatever the number is of what you earn, I think is insane. And I think any content creator should shy away from those platforms, which is also why I don't like Patreon because they do the same thing. They charge you money. They charge you a percentage of what you earn. Just charge us a fee and and just make us make the system available to collect money in our credit card gateway and procurement systems not theirs and then they're doling out money and just the system's broken we need to control cash flow we need to control data and we need to control our brand yeah that was a crazy thing for me like when i was after my first year of law school i just drove i was working like at a legal nonprofit that service veterans in santa Ana, california and i was like okay still need to make a little money so i started driving for lyft and it was so wild like i had a lot of fun like i'm an extrovert love meeting new people it was really fun and i also think it's like a public service to eradicate duis and make the roads safer sure but at the same time as what was it like ab5 and the abc test in california and everything for independent contractors is coming down and to me i was like this seems like a really obvious business opportunity where you just make a rideshare platform that someone just pays a small monthly fee or something 
but then they actually are an independent contractor. Because to me, it was stupid for Uber to just waste so much money on fighting those rules when it was like, you could actually just modify your platform to meet the qualifications. For example, like I could never choose my rides or I could never deny rides without getting penalized. Or I would have stuff like I'd be in like Newport Beach and Irvine and I'd get a call from East Orange County and you drive out to the middle of nowhere out there and then you've driven 15 minutes you're not getting compensated for and then someone cancels. Yeah. And now you're just like in the middle of nowhere where nobody gets rides except for when they get off work. But if like you've missed that little rush of people getting off work, then you're just like stranded out there and then it's like, okay, I got to go back over here. And so to me, it always just seemed like, why can't I make a a radius, for example? Like, why can't I say that I'll pick up anyone within, you know, five miles and I will only take them within 10 miles? Because then sometimes you'd get, oh, these people are in Costa Mesa and they want to go to San Diego. And you're just like, I'm going to make $100, so I guess I'll do it. But at the same time, it's if you're you know choosing not to do it or and you don't do it at the right time, and then you get like penalized and stuff. And it's just, to me, it's just you, it, it was all just driver exploitation in the same way that Amazon exploits all their sellers. And so it's just like, oh, wait a minute, you could actually make a platform that just doesn't exploit these people and actually empowers them. And that's something that'll be long-term far more sustainable because you're not going to get sued all the time for everything. You're not going to have like labor shortages and issues with people wanting to do this. You look at Uber Eats and stuff like that, and you're basically eviscerating a very low margin industry in the restaurant industry to begin with. Yeah, And and I think really the platform that'll long-term win there is something that flips it on its head where it actually just empowers you to hire your own delivery drivers. Because that's what you or really pick them up on the fly as they're available. Exactly. Exactly. There's just a pool and it's, hey, there's just a temp, it's like a temp agency for delivery drivers. And it's, oh, hey, you want to do this? Cool. Let's do it. Or sign up for different shifts or all sorts of different things that can keep costs low for everyone. Because right now you're just giving it all away to Uber Eats. Yeah. It's, I think the problem with the Uber and the um, Lyft model is they're not really ride sharing. What it was a system for working around the regulatory framework that existed in the taxi cab business. And their Absolutely. entire business model was built on a lie, which is ride sharing. And, and there's the problem, which is where the legislation came from. And again, that's a lie. These, yeah. Are these people really employees? Not really, but yeah, it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, but it really isn't. So all of these businesses are built into this system, which kind of is working around the regulatory environments that are really restrictive. We don't have that in content creation. No one really cares about us unless we're swaying misinformation and elections and that kind of thing. And then all of a sudden they start to pay attention because it's, play- it's playing in their sandbox. But in content creation, it's not regulated. It's a very lightly regulated industry having more to do with children than anything else and the kind of content you make for adults versus kids. And I think that's something that we have to be careful of and I think we have to pay close attention to. But this is an industry where it's almost like sky's the limit and it's an opportunity for us, I think. Oh, definitely. I see so much opportunity there and so many people are just thirsty for it. And you look at something, even TikTok, which I think is done more to democratize art and creation creativity and information probably more than anything since the printing press right like literally anyone in the world can hop on there and the algorithm will put it in front of people that are going to like it i think it's one of the probably the best 
algorithms out there, the problem is everything else that they do in terms of whether it's censoring content that's critical of various right. movements or governments or anything like that. And so there's still a movement of people on there that are like, hey, this is great. I've been able to build a business on my art that I've never been able to do before. But then it immediately you get to a point where you're like, oh, this is actually also really fucked up. And yeah. what's next? How do we do something else? How do we get into that same thing? And so if you could basically take like the TikTok algorithm and put it on some sort of more decentralized marketplace or platform that then people actually have the ability, there's actually like full free speech. We had that. It was called to... 8chan <laughs> or 4chan. And that was a fucking mess. Obviously. Yeah, you absolutely. Know. Human absolutely. beings are what they are. They're just, they're tribal. They're going to do the same thing over and over. And honestly, at scale, people are shitty to one another. And that's just natural human behavior. And it's pretty hard to regulate that, I, granted. So that's where we have the system we have. I personally think, I want, to take, I want to make two points that you, I want to bring back what you were just talking about, the two points, which I think are important in content creation. One is the marketing side of it, the, the access you get from these platforms in what we do, making content directly for consumers, we need six basic things. We need a website. We need a paywall. We need a payment system. You need an email system to communicate, a marketing and ad systems, and a business structure in which to do all of this within. The marketing piece is super important. And the, the platforms, TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, you name them, all the social, great places, YouTube, another one, great places to build an audience, to find an audience, and then transition them into your ecosystem. These systems will pay you money, some amount of money, although they're giving you digital scraps, they're making billions, you're making hundreds of dollars, and you have to aggregate millions of eyeballs in order to start making money. Maybe you'll have to aggregate hundreds of thousands, but you gotta find a big audience in order to start getting paid, and you get paid pennies, right? That system, in my opinion, is total bullshit. But, as far as revenue generation, but, do you have access to 500 million people overnight, instantaneously in an algorithm that will put you in front of people if you can find some kind of, of hit that makes people interested in your content and you can replicate that? Use it for what it is. It's a marketing system. It's an ad system. No reason not to use it. And secondly, I think those systems are going to be regulated in some way. Now, we used to regulate what content... Uh, went on, we didn't regulate it, meaning the government didn't regulate what content went on broadcasters. The broadcasters were confronted in the 50s and the 40s by government who wanted to shut it down and didn't like what was being put on the air. And they said, so they went, whoa. So they created this system called standards and practices. When I was at Harpo, every single draft of a screenplay, a cut of a movie, even the credits that we were going to roll at the beginning and the end of a movie went to standards and practices and they editorialized on what went in to that show and what didn't go into that show. And they would take stuff out they didn't like that didn't fit into a specified pattern or a basically a tick list of what needed to be in a show or not in the show in order for it to get on the air. I'm not saying you can do that at scale the way they did in the broadcasters. There were only three or four of them for 50 years in the US, but you still had somebody who was an arbitrator and telling you what you could and couldn't do. And they didn't tell you what to do. They just had these rules. And if you didn't comply with them, you didn't get on air. And if you didn't like it, you'd bitch at the head of the network and the head of the network would say, ah, I'm sorry, man, it's standards and practices. I can't mess with it. And the system was created 
because if they didn't do it, if the broadcasters didn't do it, and the same thing with movies, with the MPAA, both of those systems were created so that the government in the United States didn't come in and create rules and regulations and regulate the content because of the First Amendment was very difficult, lots of worries. And that's the conversation that's happening right now. The right wants Facebook to let everything go through, whether it's truthful or not. And they're saying they're being censored. But then if they create regulation that forces them to play stuff, then the government's telling them what they can and can't play. And you get into First Amendment nonsense. It's just crazy. So I think the industry has to do it on its own. It has to figure out a way to do this. And it's not doing it very well with the algorithms it has. And the only reason they're not using people is because it's expensive and it's not profitable enough for them, which is bullshit. They need to apply more people. They need to use less algorithms or add onto algorithms the human touch that gives that is an arbiter of these kinds of things. And when you're talking about the kind of content that gets uploaded every day, the people who have to watch some of the really terrible stuff, I, oh, I yeah. feel for those people. Oh yeah, they get PTSD. There's all sorts of like terrible stories of what, I mean, cause you think about what, like, I'm not even gonna be able to think of a particular movie. But you think of like, any of those old films where they'd have someone like being indoctrinated or being tortured, like with video and they've got their yeah. eyes taped open or drawn open or something. And it's, that's literally what we put Facebook moderators through, you know, it's all oh, you're going to see gore and child pornography and like all sorts of fucked up shit that they're just like, yeah, this is fine. And it's just, okay. I think on the one hand, we need to use algorithms for like the, the filtering, just like the, the flagging. And then there's gotta be some sort of, okay. If it's like a real extreme, whether it's a gore or something, it's okay. We don't need to show this to a person, but say on TikTok, there's a lot of black creators that have come on being like, oh, Hey, whenever I post about my art, it's no problem. But when I post about black lives matter or other racial justice issues, then like everything will get shut down. And it's obviously that's a big problem. And their TikTok doesn't do anything to address it. They just they're like, oh, we have almost a billion people. We can just ignore you. It doesn't matter. That's <laughs> so true. It's so true. And I think they have to do it on their own. I also think anonymity on the internet is a problem. And that's partially where the shitty behavior comes from. If you look at LinkedIn, you don't see much of that doxing and bad behavior that you see in other social platforms, largely because, hey, it's business. And if you step out of line, you're going to have a hard time getting a job, which then leads to your ability to be financially uh, sustainable. And it's you have to explain, you have to show who you are, you list your name, you have a photograph, you can create profiles that are fake. But by and large, it's, it's mostly people who are trying to network within their industry. And I think that is a problem for Facebook and Instagram and the others that I think they could solve very quickly by eliminating anonymity. YouTube is the biggest problem. I can't let my 10 year old on YouTube without me sitting over her shoulder. I, I don't know what she's gonna see. I don't know what the algorithm is gonna show her. Even if I pay for the kid's version, someone needs to curate that content so that I know, not user generated content. Somebody sat down and said, yeah, that's built for a five year old, a 10 year old, a 16 year old, an 18 year old, whatever. I don't think you should have a Facebook profile unless you're over 18. I think 13 is way too young and parents don't have enough control over that. And I think it needs to change. Yeah. I thought 13 was always just such a weird fucking arbitrary. <laughs> it's so weird. It's I arbitrary. mean, yeah, it's just like PG 13. It's why does that like actually matter? It's just like everything, everything in that is arbitrary. And yeah, I remember reading articles in slate like a few years back about like, those really fucked up YouTube videos where it would basically 
the first half of the video would be like any normal kid, like YouTube kids video. You know, that as a parent, there's those fucking videos that just have like nursery rhymes and shit that have like 700 million views. Like yeah. parents will put them on and let's shut the kids up. And then people started uploading ones where eventually it'll start to get like hyper violent. And they just took all the same ones and then all the characters will start like attacking each other and all kinds of crazy fucked up shit that like, people yeah would put on youtube kids and then they'd walk on and there's just like this gory cartoon battle going on what the fuck is this it's just it's just total nonsense and there's no real recourse because these companies are so huge like alphabets just whatever you know yeah copyright violation okay we'll get around to it but you got to prove you as a copyright owner now have to prove that your copyright's being violated by someone who has in fact violated your copyright there is no recourse for anything in those environments. And I think that's a huge problem. And I think there is, they've essentially been allowed to operate for, without any regulation. And I was talking to a couple of tech guys. I live in Los Angeles and my kid has some friends whose parents are pretty high up in, in some of the well-known tech social platforms or organizations. And their argument is, well, the internet being open is just, we can't regulate it. It's no, if that was the argument, then we would have cars that were built a hundred years ago without seatbelts go a hundred miles an hour and there's no re and nobody could sue any of the, the manufacturers if someone was killed because of the terrible building practices or whatever the systems are. So the argument that tech doesn't need or shouldn't be regulated, or it's just an open marketplace is nonsense. It's a huge business that needs to have some accountability. And if they don't do it for themselves, regulators are going to do it. And honestly, every time they do, they fuck it up every time. I think the MPAA was a really wise system that Jack Valenti built in the 1950s. I think came out of the late 40s, actually. And then the standards and practices divisions at the content broadcasters of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s was those systems worked. It's just not profitable in the way that the current systems at the social platforms have been built. And there's no two ways around it. They're going to have to change it. And if they don't do it, they're going to get... The, the worst kind of regulation that they don't like oh yeah i just can't even imagine like how stupid like some of those laws are going to end up being and what's going to end up happening because it's just, hey guys get your shit together but i think it also facebook especially but tiktok is getting there it also betrays the ultimate problem of trying to regulate something with two billion people trying and even self-regulate and trying to get that there's just so much ownership caps in this country and in fact, we do, we still do. They're just much less onerous than they were prior to Murdoch getting him changed under the Reagan administration in the late 80s so that Fox Television, the network that we all know now as Fox TV, he got, he essentially had to get the FCC to change the regulation so that he could exist in the format that he, that currently was going to break the stranglehold of the three big broadcasters. He successfully did that, but those ownership caps are basically were basically created when William Randolph Hearst was that he was the bottom fisher of the 1920s and 30s and selling newspapers. And then along came radio and television and so on. But the ownership caps, to your point of reaching billions of people, I think that kind of system needs to come back. And if Facebook can reach 2 billion people, should they be allowed to or should they basically sequester countries or regions or markets or whatever the system is? So that Facebook says, okay, yeah, we have 2 billion people, but you can't reach all of them simultaneously. You have to be a little more 
focused and there needs to be, and, and we're going to add some kind of ownership cap. I think if that happened, I think the government probably would stop and they would probably go away. And I think that's something they could do. They just choose. And I think that's the ultimate problem with just a social network and anything really that's built upon network effects is like the whole point is that you're getting more value having more people. And where do you draw that line? Like when I first got on Facebook, it was great. It was only college students. I was like, Notre Dame is, I don't know, the 25th, 50th, somewhere in there, like college to get it. I was actually pretty resistant to it at first and then finally jumped in. I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. But then they let in high schoolers and I was like, eh. and then they let in everyone. And I was like, eh. and, and now of course it's like completely metastasized until the largest country in the history of the earth, like digitally. And <laughs> now it's just, oh, okay. But we just have this like dictator who wants everyone to think he's like benevolent, but he just stole everything in the first place. And so it's kind of like, eh, this doesn't seem Allegedly. like, the, so it doesn't seem the best possible way of going about things. But then it's at the same time, like I found my family in Italy. I found relatives like all over the world. And so then it's like, where do you start drawing those lines? Like where yeah. that to me is, oh, people are like, break up Facebook. And I'm like, Okay, yeah, like you can de you can decouple Instagram, like you can decouple their assets, but the thing that it just does not matter because the power is in the audience of 2 billion people that even if you torched them, even if you drove them into bankruptcy, but they kept the platform and the audience, they'd be a multi-billion dollar company again overnight. And yeah, well, it's crazy. Like you it, can't It is. And it's we need to that's why I think like traditional antitrust it has absolutely nothing to do with these problems and will not be the solution to them because antitrust was built up far before network effect social networks existed and so it really doesn't address like the root causes and you just have to find different ways to regulate it instead of just oh we'll just break it up hell look at microsoft it broke up microsoft and now it's bigger than it ever was before yeah I, I don't i think you hit on a much wider point with the comment about the laws of the late 19th and early 20th century being applied to the 21st century. And that is that technology happens at such a fast clip, government regulation laws, they just don't keep up. And there was a time in the middle part of the 20th century where there was equilibrium in that space, where the laws caught up relatively quickly. Banking laws of the 1930s that came about, Glass-Steagall Glass was an example that really did create stability in banking for 70 years. And it was unwound. And in 2008, you know, seven years or eight years after it was unwound, the crash happened, right? Because there was too much leverage in the system and insurance and all the rest of it, investment banking and private banking were put together or retail banking were put under the same roof or allowed to be under the same roofs where they weren't in the past. And I think the systems have gotten out of control as far as their size in comparison to the way laws are catching up or the way the laws exist and they're just not catching up. And I don't know that that's honestly ever really going to change. I think the system, my question is, is a system broken or does it just need a, a faster mechanism for catching up? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anybody does. I would tend to think it's probably the latter, right? Like I, I would tend to think rather than have say Congress regulating tech, it might actually be more simple to have an independent government agency that was staffed, not with lawyers, but with technologists and a variety and ethicists and like a variety of other disciplines where they're like, okay, we have the ability to regulate tech on an ongoing and more malleable 
basis where we're actually going to take into account second, third, and end order effects because right. Congress never does that. Congress is just, oh, let's even look at AB5 in California. It's yeah. just, oh, this court decision cordoned off everything, and now we need to like enshrine that, but we're not going to think of all the negative externalities that we're going to create, and so let's just do it. And then it's, and you get a lot of people that are like, oh, this sucks. This is, you helped, you cut off one hand despite the other. You just, you're not actually getting towards the actual, solving the actual problems, or you solve one problem only to create, it's like a pharmaceutical drug. You solve one problem and then you create six more that you then need to keep creating other drugs for. And before you're on like two dozen pills a day. Yeah. And that's our legislative world has gotten like writ large, but I think especially in tech and we don't have people with the foresight to be like, okay, if we do X, what's the Y outcome of that? And what's the Z outcome of that? And like, how do those things measure up? And so I think we just fundamentally need, and there's so much of, so much of our legislative process is supposed, is designed to be slow. And we actually need parts of it to be like much faster and not so set in stone. Just, Hey, we need to experiment with X for six to 12 months and right. see what effects that has on and then gather the data and then make a better informed decision rather than they're just like, okay, this is the way it's going to be now and forever. And because I think that's where we end up with terrible regulations that cause much more harm than they do good. Yeah, for sure. And it always seems to me that the Congress is trying to swat a fly with a nuclear bomb. That's just kind of how they operate because oh, yeah. they're working at scale. Yeah. There's 325 yeah. million Americans you're never going to find a law that's going to solve even a quarter of the problems. And actually like empowering, then it's problematic because like you try and empower states more, but then there's states that just do like massively fucked up stuff or they're just still, oh, the South will rise again or the Confederacy won or just like total nonsense. <laughs> you're like, okay, can we at least get to a baseline agreed upon reality and then move? But now we're in the era of fake news and misinformation and disinformation and it just continues to spiral out of control. I do think it's hilarious like what you're raising earlier about conservatives whining about Facebook and censorship when the top 10 most viewed stuff is all Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro, all those fucking guys. And it's just, are you kidding me? You guys like run this platform. Like this is certainly joke. on Twitter. It's th those are the guys who get all the heat. They're the ones who get all the oxygen, right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, it's insane. It's actually not true, their point. And if they get what they want is the government to decide who gets to have a voice on what platforms. And that in itself is a violation of the First Amendment. It's the reason this country was created. Yeah, it's been really weird to just see the evolution of like left and right thoughts on the First Amendment and how I feel it just continues to roll over on itself. And then like the left, they'll be like, oh, yes, we need the First Amendment. And then they'll be like, oh, no, shut them down. And then the right will do the same thing. And you're just like, oh, my God, this is totally ridiculous. The right has figured out how to take Goebbels page one out of the Nazi propaganda pay, uh, playbook converted into their own system and use the fire hose of disinformation concept so that you get so much noise. And they figured it out. Trump's known it for decades. He's been doing it for decades in New York at a small scale. The Republicans figured it out in 2015 and 2016 when he ran and won, and they did it for four or five years. And the concept of the fire hose of disinformation is you just keep lying about shit such that people can't figure out what the truth is. They're not trying to figure to convince people that the lie is true. They're just bombarding them with so much bullshit that now they question everything. They question the lies. They question the truth. They question organization, structures, 
everything. And that's the space we find ourselves in. And I can tell you, some of my family members, I talk to them on a regular basis and I'm like, no, that's not true. No, that's not true. No, that's not true. And here's the reality. Go read the data. Our government actually does produce a lot of data driven without a political point of view information that you can find. You just have to go look for it. You have to learn how to read it. And you can't read it when you're tired and you can't read it when you're about to go to bed because it will put you to sleep. Oh, yeah. Bureau of Labor Statistics or something. It's just like CBO stuff. Or, yeah. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. Snooze fest. But yeah. But it's, it's real like, data. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's and been it really will, wild. It will help inform your opinion, but you have to know how to read it and you have to know how to apply it to your thinking. And I don't think most people are trained to do that. And that is. That's the conundrum we find ourselves in. The right is Nazi propaganda. And by the way, I'm not a leftist. I'm an ex-Republican. I voted for Ronald Reagan in 1984, the first time I could vote. I voted for a lot of Democrats since, but I have voted for Republicans in my life and called myself a member of the Republican Party for a very long time until probably the early 2000s. The The system is run by ghouls and they are Nazi propagandists. And it's scary. It's really frightening, actually. Oh, yeah. And then you just have like now millions of people just like waiting for the next Q drop. And you're like, that was a joke. And they're not coming back. And now it's Oh, what happens when a cult loses its leader that it never saw in the first place? It's just like, Oh, Jesus Christ, this is gonna get ridiculous. It's a crazy world. And I think the social platforms have a lot of responsibility going back to what we do in our business. I think those systems have value because they reach 2 billion people for us as marketers of content, trying to find an audience and reach an audience. And and at the end of the day, when you make content, your job is to make content so compelling that the people who want to watch it are willing to open their wallet to pay you. That is essentially our job as content creators. And if you can't do that, you can't find demand and you can't create content that taps into an audience that's willing to pay for you, then you're out of business. You've got nothing. You're just a guy on a platform talking into the wind, standing in the corner at a party, talking to yourself instead of actually getting involved in the party and figuring out where the audience is. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what the evolution of that is. And and like you talked about before, like the six things that are necessary, I really think it is. It's the real great missing piece is that ecosystem, right? Because TikTok, Facebook, anyone can shut your account down anytime. You can lose yep. millions of followers at any time. Nobody can really take away your email list. But then that's still kind of 1990s like type of technology, right? It's still the biggest like money making thing out there in terms it of still marketing. Is what works. Exactly. But I think what we really need now is we do need a like an ecosystem platform it's beyond website right so that rather than trying to build and navigate your own website or whatever that there's like a platform where it's like hey here's a creator's ecosystem that has all the different things someone's interested in here's my art here's my music here's my book and and all of that like in a like fun interactive kind of place where you can actually we're looking at over the the coming decade with the rise of more like mainstream ar and vr will be these different virtual environments i just started in a new business networking group a few months ago that they'd always met in person. And then once COVID hit, they went to Zoom, but they wanted something besides Zoom. And so they had this other company, I think they're called Remo, R-E-M-O, and they built like a virtual platform. So it's like a virtual, like, 
I don't know, conference hall, right. like a bunch of two tops and four tops and couches and stuff. And you can just go sit and pick a random physical place to sit. And then people come and congregate around. And then you're like video chatting with these people. But there is like a physical room. And there's a lot of different platforms like experimenting with this stuff now that has really been spurred by the last year of being stuck at home. And I think, hell, what, second, if you remember Second Life, that was like, what, 10, 20 years ago, whereas, oh, we're going to have this full different like online world that people are going to live in. And of course, there was stuff like Fortnite. But what I think really needs to happen is like Fortnite for adults and for content creators. So it's you can just go into this virtual world and you can meet and engage with different people. And it's totally their own in, to some extent. Yeah, I think AR and VR in content creation is they both have merits. I think VR is going to have less of a retail application. I think it's going to be more B2B. I think it's going to be more of what you described, people doing things virtually and being able to communicate and be in a space where it's a common thing. AR is, I think, a lot more interesting in this in the way of for retail because I think VR, you got to put on a lot of shit to make it work. It's just, it's not sexy to put on the headphones not and, yeah. the, and the goggles and all the rest of it. So it's really a... I think it's really a environment specific kind of thing, but AR is a completely different animal that with a phone or any kind of tablet, you can really turn retail content creation into a fascinating thing. And to some extent, Pokemon Go was a good example of it. Obviously the first version of it, that's what mm -hmm. Google was trying to figure out is how does this thing work and will people adopt adapt to it? And they did. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that in the next 10 years, especially on the AR side. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's going to give so many people, so many people that are artists of different forms to then go and become like AR artists, or you make paintings that can look different ways to different people, depending on where they are, or how they look at it, or almost like sort of like hologram type effects and stuff like that. And I think I've already seen in LA, there's a place called Wisdom. It's like yeah. down the arts district, there's like a bunch of domes and they had this one, I'm going to forget who what was it? it was Android Jones did it and had a full like art display that you'd go and he'd have regular paintings and then AR paintings and like all sorts of stuff. So you could, the entire painting would just start moving and all sorts of stuff that can get layered up in there. And I'm really excited to see like what millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha will be able to do with that kind of stuff when they're like natively born into it. Yeah. You're starting to see it with the, the Banksy exhibit that's been around. It's coming to the US this year and then the latter half of the year. And then you see it with the Van Gogh exhibit, same thing, the immersive kind of environments that are being created. And that, I think that's the first step in this world. And I think it's gonna be, it's gonna be interesting to watch for sure and content creators. It's another outlet. It's content keeps finding new places and new ways of being created and exhibited and collecting, extracting money out of people's wallets. Again, it's about creating content that people are compelled enough to pay for. That's our job as content creators. If you can't do that, you're in the wrong business. Oh, definitely. So I'd love to know what is some of your best advice for looking to get into the film industry or looking to become a content creator? It's two columns. One is the corporate business of content creation. That's working for the studios. You're an employee uh, or you're a freelancer who's creating content. That's one system. The other is... Uh, kind of direct to consumer, doing it yourself, entrepreneurial outside of the system. The place I say to most people is if you're going to create content, come into the business and spend a couple years here. If your desire is to work outside of the system and 
be an entrepreneur of your own, create your own systems. That's great. But why wouldn't you come to the place where you can shortcut the learning curve of how the systems, how you create moving pictures or motion pictures? How do you market them? How do you put all the pieces together to make the six direct-to-consumer elements come together for you? So I always say start in the corporate world. Those jobs start as assistants. You're going to be do a shitty job. You're going to be an indentured servant. It's just a fact of life. You can talk all day long about working living wage, but it doesn't fucking matter because there's a thousand people behind you and everyone complains about it, but that's the reality of it. That's how I came up. It's how the people before me came up. You don't need to work with an abusive asshole. And if you find that you're working for a Scott Rudin, you have to make a choice do you, or a Harvey Weinstein. You have to make a choice. Do I want to take the abuse and build a Rolodex for a year or two, or do I just want to cut bait and go someplace else and find someone who's not an asshole? So I'm not saying you have to be abused by people, but you do have a choice. Come to the business. I think you have to do that from any business. You have to get to headquarters as fast as you can. If you're in cars, you got to be in Detroit. If you're in steel, which I don't know anybody who is to the, in, in 2021, but if you're in steel, you got to get to Pittsburgh or the Midwest in, in Ohio or Western Pennsylvania. If you're going to work in, if you want to work in content creation, you got to, if you're going to do books, do it in New York. If you're going to want to work in TV or feature, the decisions get made in Los Angeles. You need to come here. And as a young, as a young person coming out and coming into the industry, and I mean, out of college up until you're around 30, don't worry about necessarily your title, how much you're making and, and that sort of thing. That's mostly irrelevant. You need to learn and remember you have to focus more on what you're learning and who you're learning from. And then you also have to focus on who your boss is. What are the organizations? This is a business that is star fuckers. They just want the big titles. You, if you're going to do terrible reality, that's the space you're going to live in your entire career. You want to do features, dramatic TV, come work in that. You started as an assistant, care about who you work for and care about building a network and stay connected to that net network over time. You're going to see people who are force multipliers. Get them in your network. And that network starts the building process by being an assistant on somebody's desk, taking coffee every day, taking lunch every day. If you can, some places don't allow it, but put that aside for a second. And if you're going to have lunch with the people in your organization, if you have to work at your desk and get connected and be social outside, go drinks, go see movies together, go see art installations, go see everything that you possibly can with your friends, with your show friends. And I put that in quote, because when you have friends in Hollywood, they're your show business friends. They're not going to be the people who are going to be your friends for life. They're transactional friends. Just understand it and, and stay connected to them. Because those networking opportunities in five or 10 or 15 years, if you stay connected to them, will expand your spider web out such that your career will, will accelerate and the day you stop networking is the day your career begins to atrophy. It's just a fact of life. And you're in charge of that. So if you're not a necessarily a social person, figure it out or go do something else for a living. So my basic advice is come to Hollywood, take a job as an assistant and figure out what vertical you want to work in and then stay in that vertical as much as possible. When I say vertical, reality, uh, feature, episodic television, dramatic TV, comedy, those kinds of things. That's the vertical you need to think in terms of. And yeah, we run a course to help people understand that. That's one of the things I do is I teach young entrepreneurs in the business how to run your brand and how do you get connected? How do you network? How do you research where you want to work? 
And how do you get pigeonholed? Because that's ultimately your goal, getting pigeonholed. This business doesn't understand what to do with the unicorn. They understand what to do with the white horse, the brown horse, the spotted horse, whatever horse you are, they understand what to do with it. And you have to set that frame in every conversation you have. Because if you don't, the person opposite you from you will set it for you and they won't always get right what you want. I oh, love it. It's great advice. Tim, how has a failure or an apparent failure set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? So every single time, first of all, there's no, I don't think there is a such thing as failure. I think failure is staying at home and not trying something. Anybody who gets in business, opens a business, starts something new, and it doesn't turn into whatever the thing is, whether it's James Clear or I'm going to lose the guy who wrote the four hour work week. At any rate, Tim Ferriss. Tim Ferriss. Yep. If you're not a James Clear or a Tim Ferriss on the web, they're the Obviously, they're the shining star, the North Star in, this, in, in the internet space. If you're not that and you haven't figured it out, there is no failure in not becoming that person. You tried something. The failure is in not learning from that experience. So try stuff, be out there, take risk, take a lot of risk when you're in your 20s. The idea of work-life balance when you're 20 is complete and total bullshit. This is a business where you compete hand-to-hand -hand combat with the guy next to you. And when he's there or she's there until midnight and you're knocking off at five o'clock, they win. Your career doesn't go as fast as them. Theirs goes much faster than yours. And that is a statistical fact. I've watched it happen over and over again. So abandon the idea that you're going to have work-life balance. If you got a teenager, you got a kid and you're 40 and you don't have the work-life balance, you got a problem. You got to figure that out. You got to transition into a life where you can take care of your family and raise your kids if that's what you decide to do. I'm not saying work-life balance forever is a thing, but in your 20s, use the thing you have, which is time, because you have a lot of it and you're not going to make a lot of money. So I think going back to your question about the fa what fa failures have I had? I wrote a book about it, actually, about a movie I was on. It wasn't specifically about that film. It was a conglomeration of a bunch of different experiences over time with producers who I had worked with and other people. And I let greed get in the way of my making a good decision. The producers came to me weeks before the beginning of principle and said, we got to get to Mexico. We got to shoot. Part of the movie took place in Mexico. And we were going to shoot that in Texas, not in Mexico for reasons that are obvious to the Sinaloa drug cartels and that sort of thing. Mexico is a great place, great people. It's run by a failed state, but put that aside for a sec. Not a place to shoot a movie. When they said, we got to get to Mexico, I was looking at my weekly rate and thinking to myself, shit, do I really want to walk away? No, I want the money. And I made the mistake and that was my failure. I let greed get in the way. Instead of saying every voice, every light, everything in front of me said, walk away. This is a problem. We're two weeks out from principal and they want to pull the plug to go to Mexico to shoot stuff we've already scouted, built and everything. And I let the pay get in the way. And I wound up almost getting arrested. The secretary, the guys ran out of money. They said they raised more money than they did. They were halfway there. They come to me and say, we got to shut down production. And uh, the next thing I know, they flee the country. I'm stuck there with 53 cast and crew. Got to get them out. A plus of $3 million worth of equipment. And we did. And by Wednesday, well, that was on a Monday night. By Wednesday, the secretary of labor came down and said, look, you and your production manager, you're going to get thrown in jail if you don't cough up whatever it was, $200,000 to pay the local crew. And we revoked your visa. So, you know, that every single signpost along the way told me to walk away when we were leaving North Carolina. And I didn't. And that was the biggest 
thing I ever learned. That was the biggest lesson. Came late in my career. I was already in my 40s by that point. I'd been doing it for a long time as a line producer. And I let greed get in the way. I, I didn't think rationally about what should I be doing in this situation? Should I walk or should I stay? And I should have walked. Wow. <laughs> that sounds pretty intense. Yeah. Money. It's a fascinating incentive that sometimes can distort your view, make your moral oh. comp compass spin pretty quickly. Oh, totally. Tim, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. It's been a lot of fun. And that brings me to my last question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? The kindest thing. Wow, that's hard. There have been a lot of them. The kindest thing I would have to say that was ever done, and I'm going to approach it from a career perspective because that's what I that's what I put out there in the world in my career. And that is a very, I'll, I'll call her nice, a very nice woman. And there's a lot of other adjectives I could use because she's great. I, I adore her and I think very highly of her. But an executive at Harpo Films, a woman who gave me my job, who gave me the transition from working as a production accountant and just a guy on crew gave me the executive job, a woman called Kate Forte. She was the president of Harpo Films at the time. And we, I was the accountant on the first movie in the series of Oprah Winfrey Presents in 1996, I think, or 95. I think it was 96. And she asked me to come and do some consulting for them after the movie was over, which led to me being the head of physical production for them. And what that, the reason I say it's kindness she was never a mentor. I don't believe in the mentor conversation. I, you will find mentors and people who you who you admire, who you want to emulate behavior out of and, and emulate behavior from. You don't necessarily have to go to them and go, hey, buddy, will you be my mentor? That's a weird conversation. And a lot of places tell you to do that. What, <laughs> what I think you need to do is you have to identify sponsor versus mentor. A mentor can be someone who you actually know and you connect with or it's just someone who you watch do their job and say, I want to emulate that person. I want to emulate that man or woman. That's a mentor. It can be implied or it can be implicit. The sponsor is the person that you are doing work for or work with who picks you up and puts you in the next chair. So you have to work hard for them. You have to do the best job you can for the job you currently are given. And then look at the next job and do some of those and do some of that. That's what that's the those are the people who stay till midnight and are doing the extra work to prove to your sponsor that you're ready to move up to the next job. So when the sponsor is in the room and they say, "Hey, we got six people and you're talking about a bunch of executives together. We got six people who are qualified to do this next job. Who do you want to put into this role?" And Kate Forte said, "I want Tim Tortora and I got that job because of her." So you want to impress upon the person who is your sponsor that you're skilled and you're dedicated and you're motivated to go to the next level and you will do whatever work is required to get that done. So anyway, recognize and understand who your sponsors are and who your mentors are and understand they're different. And the sponsor is the one who's going to help you move your career forward. Mm, love that. Yeah. Well, so Kate Forte was the nicest person to me. She gave me my keys to the executive washroom. Love that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tim. It was a pleasure getting to speak with you. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. 
If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash the LUE podcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Awesomeness.